Today's scripture is from Deuteronomy 8, 2-3, and Matthew 9, 14-17. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what, it's, <clears throat> what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Then the disciples of John came, came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. are new to Good News Church. My name is Mark. I am not the pastor of this church, but I am a pastoral intern here. And Pastor Sam is away on vacation with his family. Please keep them in your prayers. Um, and as an intern, I'm blessed by all of you with the opportunity to preach to you um, occasionally. And um, so today I wanted to talk to you about what it means to hunger for God and how we can deepen our hunger for God. You know, the reality is that all of us hunger for something. We hunger for attention. We hunger for love. We hunger for entertainment, for pleasure. And of course, we all hunger for food. And I think part of the reason is because we were created to hunger. As people created by God, he's given us a hunger for all these things to point to a deeper hunger in us for God himself. Listen to what scripture says about this hunger. From Psalm uh, chapter 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 63, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food when I think of you. But if you're like me, then sometimes you don't hunger for God. Sometimes your hunger for good food, for good drink, for entertainment, for pleasure, and for a whole host of other things is so much greater than your hunger for God. And then what do you do? What do you do when you don't hunger for God? We've been talking for the past few weeks about spiritual disciplines or different habits that we can cultivate to deepen our faith in God. And today I want to look with you at a discipline that I think is a means with which we can deepen this hunger for God. And that's the discipline of fasting. 
So before I uh, go any further, would you all please pray with me? Lord God, I pray that you would come and be here with us. Grant us your Holy Spirit. Grant me your spirit that I might speak faithfully, faithful to your word, Lord. So please, Lord, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. So what is fasting? Simply put, fasting is willingly abstaining from something good for a dedicated period of time for some purpose. And today I want to look with you at what that purpose is. And just as a summary, what we're going to see is that fasting, what it does is fasting exposes our hearts, fasting trains our hearts, and fasting directs our hearts to Christ in worship and prayer. You know, I was thinking about fasting uh, just this past week and also the past few weeks, and I realized that, you know, I don't think fasting is an easy concept to accept in New York City, in America, in our society. And I think part of the reason is because this idea of abstaining goes against all the impulses of our culture. The main impulse of our culture is self-indulgence. You know, we live in... New York City, which is arguably the food capital of the world, you know, and not just food, but whatever pleasure you want, whether it's good drink, whether it's entertainment, any craving or desire that you have, you can find here in New York City. You know, my wife and I, we moved here from Philadelphia and we were amazed because, you know, in Philly, the best restaurants have on Yelp maybe, you know, 100, 200 reviews. But in New York City, if a restaurant has only... 100 reviews, it's, you know, it's not trustworthy. You have to, you know, the really good places have at least 400 or 500 reviews. And this was shocking to us. It was shocking to us how you have all the choices, all the cuisines in the world right here in New York City. And also, not only that, the living in New York City, we found, is really hard. It's really challenging. You need thick skin to make it here. New York is one of those cities where when you push, it kind of pushes back. You know, in New York, people are known for working long hours in stressful work environments. You live in tiny apartments that cost you an arm and a leg. And, you know, we all feel that because we're living in this stressful environment, we need a way to escape. We need somewhere to go to find our joy and comfort. And so, obviously, we indulge in all that this city has to offer. And, The city offers much. So then why would we ever, why would we ever abstain willingly from such good things? You know, I think before we can talk about why we might abstain from these things, before we can answer that question, one thing we have to realize is that all of these good gifts from God, these good gifts from God, good food, good drink, entertainment, all of these things, can be dangerous. Uh, In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God. And in this parable, he describes the kingdom as a man who held a great banquet. And this man, when the banquet is ready, he sends out a servant and he says, go call all the people I invited to this banquet. So this servant is going and he's calling all of these uh, people that he invited to this great banquet. And 
It's amazing their response. These servants, or sorry, these people that were invited, they don't come to the banquet. But why don't they come? Is it because they were enticed by sin? Is it because the devil led these people away from the kingdom? What you find in their response is that, no, the reason why they didn't come, according to Jesus, was because of a nice field, because of five yoke of oxen, because of marriage. You see, for these people, the good gifts from God had become ultimate things. All of these good things, you know, that we see in the Bible. And, you know, when we read a passage like Luke 14, you know, I I think most of us here, we probably can't relate directly because I don't think many of us own fields, especially in New York City or five yoke of oxen. But all of us here, we own houses or we own cars or different things, and we have families and children and all good things, maybe even great things that we should receive from God with thanksgiving. But we see that all of these things, these good things, can threaten to become ultimate things. Uh, one pastor says it this way. He says that the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. When we are left to ourselves, free to indulge in whatever craving we have in our heart, then what happens is we not only begin to take those things for granted, but we start to feel that we can't live without them we slowly begin to put our trust in those things. Is your work depressing you? At least you have that exquisite meal to look forward to. Are you struggling with insecurity or doubt about your own life? At least you have children you can put all of your hopes and dreams on. Are you struggling with your marriage? Just flip out your phone and go catch some Pokemon. Instead of going to God and clinging to his promises in the midst of our struggles, so often we forget God by medicating ourselves with the things that he has given us. And the most scary thing is that it's so hard to know. It's incredibly hard to know when we started to elevate these good gifts above the giver of these gifts. And I think the only way for us to know is when God lovingly takes these things from us. Uh, We see an example of this in our passage today from Deuteronomy. Here Moses is speaking to the Israelites before they enter the promised land, and he's telling them about the 40 years that they've been traveling through the wilderness, and he describes it as a time of testing. He says that God tested them to know what was in your heart, And verse 3 tells us that the way he tested them in the wilderness was by humbling them with hunger. God tested Israel in the desert to see whether what they truly worshipped in their hearts agreed with the confession of their lips. God wanted to see whether their outward confession of love for this God who brought them out of Egypt was just empty ritual. 
or something that flowed out of a heart that truly loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way that he did this was by causing them to hunger. And God did this because he knows that all of us, all of us have this tendency in this fallen world to turn these good gifts into ultimate things. You know, if you look a little bit earlier in the story of Israel, right after God frees Israel from Egypt, right after he defeats Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea and then causing the Red Sea to come upon Pharaoh, right after this, it says in Exodus 15 that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Sounds pretty good, right? They see the glory of God and then they start to put their trust in God. But then what happens? Right after they enter the wilderness, just three days later, it says that the Israelites started to grumble against the Lord because of food and drink. Here's what it says. Here's what the Israelites say against the Lord. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And then even when God graciously responds by blessing them with manna, later in Numbers chapter 11, this is how the Israelites respond again. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. The people of God, rescued from bondage in Egypt, right after they had seen the glory of God in parting the Red Sea in a fire and cloud, they grumble against God because of garlic, because of garlic, because of cucumbers, because of onions. And we look at this story and we think, how could you grumble against the Lord, this Lord who defeated your enemy, who freed you from slavery? Hunger exposed what was truly in their hearts. And it showed that they really loved food more than God. And I think just like hunger, fasting for a dedicated period of time exposes what is in our hearts. Fasting forces us to ask the question, do you hunger more for food than you hunger for God? Do you hunger more for entertainment than the presence and power of God in your life? Is God just the appetizer to the main feast of all of your personal pursuits? Or is God himself the main feast? Is he the one you trust in even when your food is gone? Even when the entertainment is gone and your stomach is empty? You know, my guess is that probably none of us here have ever grumbled against God because of garlic? But is that because we trust God and we love him more than garlic? Or is it because we have so much garlic and onions and cucumbers and meat and all the food we could ever want that we feel that we no longer need him? If you've never fasted before, You know, I still think that this experience is something that you can relate to in your life. Many of us here, um, 
have gone through difficult circumstances. Um, many of us are going through difficult circumstances. And, you know, I was just talking to a brother from this church, and uh, he was sharing how, you know, a few months ago, it was when he was in the most difficult circumstance in a long time that he felt a great desire for God. You see, sometimes it's often in these difficult circumstances when something is taken away that we feel we need God the most, that we hunger most for his power and for his work in our life. Why is that? Or, you know, we know that we have a team on the mission field in Africa. If you've been on missions before, why is it that we often feel the greatest hunger for God when we're on missions? I think the reason is because in these situations of hardship, God shows us who we really are. When we go on the mission field, uh, we're fasting, in a sense, from the comforts of home. The Israelites, they had to go without meat and garlic in the wilderness. And when we go on the mission field, we have to go without things like clean water, without clean food, without clean air, reliable AC. And a lot of times in those experiences, God, he tests us and he exposes our hearts. And he shows us what we are truly worshiping when we respond, when those things are taken away. Do we respond in anger? Do we grumble against him? Do we become stressed and long to be back home? Also, in those moments, uh, when God takes those things away, the things we would normally rely on to hide a lot of our problems, uh, those things we can't rely on anymore. So in those moments, we go to God with clearer vision for how great he is and how broken and unsatisfying the world is. Uh, Last year, in the spring, my wife and I, we actually had an opportunity to go on a missions trip together, and uh, we went to Cambodia. And uh, some of you might be familiar with Cambodia or Southeast Asia, and let me just tell you, uh, it was not a pleasant trip. Uh, Cambodia is one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, probably one of the poorest in Southeast Asia, and Cambodia has an incredibly sad, sad history. And no matter where you go in the country, you can't avoid uh, the reality of the history of genocide in their country. And, you know, Cambodia, the food isn't good. Uh, It's not like Thailand. The food's not good. The country's polluted. Um, And when we were there, it was going through a heat wave at the time. And, you know, when we went there, we were fasting from all these things we normally enjoyed here, and I have to confess to you that God really exposed my heart when I was there, and he really showed me how much I loved and idolized comfort. Where The place we were staying, we had to pay for AC, and my wife was suggesting, remember, there was a heat wave. My wife was suggesting, oh, maybe we, we don't need to use AC every day, and <laughs> I was not having any of it. Um, You know, we were there when we were traveling, hit with a thick blanket of pollution. I don't know if you have experienced that before, where you don't just see pollution, but it hits you just in the air. Um, And as we were experiencing all these things, as these things that I took comfort in were taken away, 
I just slowly began to loathe and hate the idea that God might ever call us to a place like this. You know, I remember thinking, God, please don't send us here. Please send us somewhere with good food and AC. And man, God showed me how much I loved comfort and how far I was willing to go, how far I was willing to sacrifice his calling on my life for the sake of comfort. You see, when we fast from something we would normally enjoy, God exposes our hearts and he shows us whether these things have mastered us, whether these things have control over us. And I think in those moments, we begin to see what's truly in our hearts. And when God shows us that, it leads us to repentance. And we begin to hunger more and more for God as we see that these things more and more won't satisfy us. So that leads me to my second point. Not only does fasting expose our hearts, but fasting also trains our hearts to hunger more and more after God. In our passage in Deuteronomy, Moses says in verse 3 that not only did God let the Israelites hunger to expose what was in their hearts, but he also let them hunger and fed them with manna from heaven, quote, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God didn't just leave the Israelites there in their hunger, but he let them hunger so that he could feed them with manna and have them learn and learn to depend more and more on him for their food. That they might learn to not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. Fasting is not just abstaining from something good, but it's reaching out for and holding on to something better. Fasting is a powerful means with which we can train our hearts to do this. We can train our hearts to have a deeper hunger for God and greater fervency in our prayers. Pastor Sam, he preached a few weeks ago, I think to start off this series from, I think it was from 1 Timothy, where Paul says that bodily training is of some value, but training in godliness is of value for all things. This is one way to train your heart. Now, this is what, this is what uh, Martin Luther says about fasting. He says, It is right to fast frequently in order to subdue and control the body. For when the stomach is full, the body does not serve for preaching, for praying, for studying, or for doing anything else that is good. And I think that applies not just to food, but I think it can apply to anything that we hunger for. And we indulge in. But maybe some of you are wondering, what, like, what does food have to do with my hunger for God? How can having an empty stomach make me think more about God or help me to pray more fervently? What difference does abstaining from a meal make? You know, I think in our culture, uh, it might be the case that we're so accustomed to being physically full, that we don't actually know what it means to be hungry. We don't actually know what it means to thirst. Because as soon as we have the slightest tinge of hunger or thirst, whether it's for food 
or for information or entertainment, we can satisfy that hunger immediately. So when we do this, we start to train our hearts daily to expect instant gratification for whatever desire we have. It's not surprising then that when we go to God in prayer and we're expected to wrestle with God like Jacob to get God's blessing, our hearts get disappointed because God doesn't respond immediately or we're not instantly gratified. And, you know, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I find myself so distracted when I'm praying. You know, did I get a new email message or what's happening on Facebook or, you know, whatever um, desire that you might have. Just so many thoughts flooding my mind. And I think part of it is because when we are so used to being full all the time and satisfying every desire immediately, we don't know what it means to wait and to wait on God. In the letter of James, I was just reflecting on this uh, for the past few weeks. In James chapter 5, James, he's writing to people who are rich and who are indulging in the luxuries of this world. And it's interesting because James, in chapter 5, verse 5, he doesn't say, you've fattened your stomachs. But he actually says, you've fattened your hearts. You've fattened your hearts. Jesus tells us that all that we do flows from our hearts. But when our hearts have become so fattened by the world's treasures, I wonder whether there's much room left for a desire for prayer. Fasting trains you to say no. It trains you to say no to some desires that come at you and to avoid the tendency to instantly gratify. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, some of you might be familiar with him. He was a man who definitely was familiar with uh, this idea of self-denial. He was a Christian in World War II in Nazi Germany, and he eventually was martyred uh, for his faith for uh, resisting the Nazi regime. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this. He says, When the flesh is satisfied, it is hard to pray with cheerfulness, or to devote oneself to a life of service which calls for much self-renunciation. Fasting, it trains our hearts and it deepens our hunger for God, but it also prepares us to live a life of fasting, to live a life of self-renunciation, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it. The denial of something small now prepares us for making those bigger sacrifices in the future. You know, you think about what God has called us to do in this city, uh, what God has called you to do um, in your respective circles. Uh, You think about sharing the gospel. Uh, When we share the gospel, uh, we are taking a risk and we are denying ourselves the pleasure of a comfortable relationship. We're denying ourselves freedom from shame. Fasting can train your heart to be able better to self-deny, to deny this desire in that moment, to just avoid breaching the subject, to avoid talking about the gospel. Or you think about in your marriage, uh, when 
you were having a difficult time with your spouse. Uh, maybe uh, you haven't been talking for a long time. Uh, how will you, in that moment, be prepared to deny your desire to be right? What will God call you to do in your life? What hardship might come your way in the future? And how will you train yourself now for when that moment comes? If we're never used to denying ourselves anything, then how will our hearts be trained to deny ourselves in those moments? C.S. Lewis, he gives a really helpful analogy uh, when talking about self-denial and just to be clear, C.S. Lewis, you know, you think about him, he was a Christian thinker in the UK and he enjoyed good food. He enjoyed his cigars and good liquor. Um, and yet he valued uh, this practice of self-denial. And what he says is this. He says that we don't know whether God is going to call us. We don't know in advance whether God's going to call us to something uh, difficult or painful or nice. But we have to be prepared. And he uses this analogy of training soldiers. And he says that when soldiers are training for war, they use blank ammunition because they want to be prepared when they face the real enemy. And so he says this, We must practice in abstaining from pleasures which are not in themselves wicked. If you don't abstain from pleasure, you won't be good when the time comes along. It is purely a matter of practice. And friends, when we practice this self-denial, remember, it is not just abstaining from something. It's not just gritting our teeth and hoping that we will become more disciplined. But this act of fasting, this act of self-denial, is an act of actually indulging in something else, saying no to something good and saying yes to something infinitely greater. Fasting not only exposes our hearts, it not only trains our hearts to hunger after God and make sacrifices, but fasting also directs our hearts to Christ in worship. Um, We've been talking about the importance of fasting, but it's interesting in the second passage in your bulletins today from Matthew 9, uh, Jesus' disciples actually didn't fast. And John the Baptist's disciples are really surprised. They come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? If we and the Pharisees fast, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus gives a somewhat puzzling answer. He says this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. There's a few things to notice about this passage. Jesus here, he connects fasting with mourning. Specifically, he connects fasting with mourning Jesus' absence. Jesus is the bridegroom, and his disciples are the wedding guests. And Jesus is saying, while the bridegroom is here, the wedding guests don't need to fast. It is a time of celebration, not a time of mourning while he is with them. When he is gone, then they will mourn and then they will fast. Throughout the Bible, we see this idea that fasting is tied closely with mourning. Uh, In Luke chapter 2, Anna, the prophetess, she's in the temple fasting and praying day and night. And she's doing this because she's mourning. 
She's waiting eagerly for God to come in and to break into history and to redeem his people. This is why John the Baptist disciples fasted, because they were waiting for God to act. They were mourning. But Jesus' disciples, they don't fast as long as he is with them. They don't mourn. They're not waiting for God to act, because in Jesus, God has already ushered in his kingdom. In Jesus, God is walking among them. But Jesus does say that the day will come when Jesus himself is taken away from them. And then he says, and then they will fast. Not and then they can fast, not and then they might fast, but he says, and then they will fast. All of us here, we enjoy the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And yet, even though we enjoy his presence through the Spirit, we still yearn eagerly for that day when Christ will fully return in power. And therefore, today, we fast as a means of worship and prayer to say to God, Lord, this much do we desire you. Lord, this much do we hunger for you. Lord, this much do we mourn your absence from us. Lord, we fast because we are waiting for that banquet with you in the kingdom and we're waiting for you to return in power to make all wrongs right the past few weeks uh, in our country and around the world have shown us that there are so many wrongs that god needs to make right and so maybe this is a time for fasting like no other Maybe this is a time for fasting like no other because we eagerly desire for Christ to return and to make all of these wrongs right. You know, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, you know, I'm talking about hungering for God and tasting God and enjoying God, but I realize that maybe there are some of you here um, who have never tasted the goodness of God. Or maybe for some of you, it's been so long since you've tasted his goodness and had a deep hunger for his presence that the idea of giving up something good like food or social media or anything else to have more of him seems like a horrible idea. Something reserved for the super spiritual. Is God really worth it? Is it really true that his steadfast love is better than life? Is it really true that his words are sweeter than honey? Who is this God that we hunger for? He is the God who is infinitely rich. The one who created all good pleasure. Who created all food and all the most beautiful sights you could ever hope to see in the world. God is the one who designed your taste buds. He designed your tongue and your taste buds to find pleasure in food. And he gave you eyes to wonder at his creation. And this is the holy God, the one who has legions of angels surrounding his throne every day, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And yet, 
this infinitely rich God, became poor on your behalf. You know, we're here talking about how we might fast to have more of God. But he is the one who came to earth and fasted from his glory and his crown and all the pleasures of the world that he might have you. He came to us when we did not want him, when we were still sinners. God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were following our own way, hating God, not wanting him, God, he showed his mercy and that he made us alive in Christ. Friends, if you're like me, then you fail to hunger after God as you should. I know I do. We too often indulge in the things of this world and we find them so much more pleasurable than Him. But you know what the amazing thing is? God knew, God knew that you would fail to hunger after Him when He went to the cross. This is not surprising to God. You know, we fail to hunger after God, and yet he loved us before the foundation of the world. He didn't first love you because you had a great hunger for you. He first loved you when you had no hunger for him at all. In Christ, God rejoices over us. Does that amaze you? Isn't that astounding that though we fail to hunger after this great God, he still rejoices over us? You know, I'm so amazed by uh, this one description of God. It's probably one of my favorite Bible verses from Zephaniah 3.17. It says that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We sing to God every Sunday during worship. But did you know that God sings over you, that he exalts over you with loud singing? Brothers and sisters, does that amaze you? Does this God, who he is, astound you? Or has your heart become so enticed by the pleasures of this world that God and the gospel are just so boring? What is God showing you that you need to fast from, that he might strengthen your hunger for him? Fasting is not for the super spiritual. It's not for past, just for pastors or missionaries. Fasting is for the weak. Fasting is for those whose hearts have grown cold and who have a very weak hunger for God. Is God worth it? Brothers and sisters, I hope he shows you that he is worth it. He is worth it. So let's hunger after God. Would you pray with me now?